Our second scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses, 20, or verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, I don't know if somebody at Facebook knows that I'm in desperate need of sermon illustrations. But for some reason, it keeps showing up and telling me everything Steve Edmonds does on the Internet. If he comments on something, I see it. If he likes something, I see it. And so this week when I was looking at Facebook, it pops up and it says Steve Edmonds commented on something. And I see Steve's comment and it says, this is a hoax. Not in big letters, but it feels like something you'd type in big letters. But what he was commenting on was a picture of an actor. And it said, rest in peace, Dwayne Johnson, 1972 to 2017. Dwayne Johnson is not dead. This was a hoax. I looked it up. Um, I know, isn't that a little scary? But it's a little scary because you know who it, is, who it is. But hearing just Dwayne Johnson by itself is a little off-putting. Does, see, that's every, The Rock. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, as you will often see him listed. It's weird hearing just Dwayne Johnson. Because we're so used to The Rock. Or at least Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Because that's what his name shows up on everything nowadays when he's being serious. It still says The Rock. He's a grown man. But Dwayne Johnson by itself sounds like an accountant, so I can understand it. But Dwayne Johnson became a cultural touchstone as a professional wrestler, uh, standing up in front of people, letting them know of his prowess in cooking, <laughs> calling people jabronis. I still don't know what a jabroni actually is. I hope it's okay to say in church. If it's not, I'm really sorry. <laughs> he had his over-articulated eyebrows and talked about breaking ankles. But as a 90s kid, I thought he was the coolest guy on the planet. This coolness was just expanded when he became a movie star. Past that, he brought his charm and his humor and his pecs onto the stage, not just in the squared circle. But when he did that originally, he tried to be a little bit more serious and go by Dwayne Johnson in the billing. But nobody knew who he was, so he had to keep The Rock in the middle, like a middle name. And now he's the second highest paid actor in, in the, I don't understand what world we live in, where he's the second highest paid actor in Hollywood, but whatever. But our story today is about someone else who got a second name that technically is The Rock. So that's where we're at. That's the reason we just talked about a wrestler for the first five minutes of a sermon. Um, so this isn't the, just the only time that names change in scripture. 
this story that we have today. In the Old Testament, we have stories left and right of people changing their names. Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. These name changes function as a sort of monument to a huge change in the person's life. So my question today is, what is happening in good old Simon's life in this story that is so monumental that his name changes? Think about where we've seen Simon up to this point. It's been a whirlwind of studying for a short period of time relatively under this teacher, this rabbi who just shows up into his life and starts speaking in parables and talking about ushering in the kingdom of God. And he has some pretty radical ideas about how people are supposed to interact with one another. So Simon, being this gung-ho, take-charge kind of guy, as soon as he's given an opportunity to tell Jesus what he thinks of him, he does it. Jesus asks the question, who do you think I am? And Simon speaks up real fast. I can just see this as kind of like a, like a raising your hand, kind of like, uh, what was his name, Horshack from Welcome Back, Cotter? Yeah, just, ooh, ooh, yeah. <laughs> he says, you are the Messiah, the son, the, the son of the living God. Now, I've talked before a couple other times that I've talked in front of y'all about how Messiah was just as much so, if not a political term, as it was a theological term. Because Messiah showed up all the time during this time period to liberate the Jewish people from Roman rule. It never worked for them, but they tried a lot and called themselves Messiah while they did it. But now this son of the living God part was not as commonplace. Really, I don't think anybody else besides Peter in this story calls Jesus this at all during the actual Gospels. And it happens more in the epistles. It's a deeply theological title, focusing not only on Jesus' relationship to God, but also God's ability to act in the world in this time and place. God is not just a distant God. He is a living God. He's a breathing God. So you can kind of see where Peter picked up this language from Jesus before this time. When Jesus is talking about his Father in heaven, Jesus is talking about things like living water. He's talking about a God that he talks to. So you can kind of see where where Peter is picking this up just from what he's heard before. And Jesus likes the answer, right? He gets the extra credit. And it says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And from there, his name is changing to Peter. But I want to think about this blessing for a bit. If, like Abraham, Sarah, and Jacob, names change in a monumental moment in a person's life, this blessing has to be Peter's moment. So what's happening? What is going on in the life of Peter was Simon, now Peter, in this situation. I can think of one of three things. So maybe it's Peter showing a deep theological mind. He is intellectually surmised based off of his understanding of the scriptures that this is who Jesus is. That sounds well like this, like he's this, I don't know, mix between N.T. Wright and Sherlock Holmes. Like he just deduced it. But I, I would be inclined to believe that if it weren't for the fact that for the most part in the gospels peter is a dunce um i mean if you think about it before jesus shows up he's the son of a fisherman i there's real little evidence that he knew how to read nonetheless interpret the scriptures at that time so i doubt that's where he's coming from now it could be a, a heart action right it could be just peter is just so enamored by the situation that he is so 
caught up in it emotionally, that he is showing kindness to Jesus, and that is the reason Jesus blesses him. I'm less inclined to believe that, too, because it, there are a lot easier things to say when you're enamored by a situation than this theological language that he's using. So because those two things seem like a far-flung thing to me, the only thing that I can ascertain is that Jesus' confession is given to him by God. And it's, um, that sounds complicated, but it's not because it's exactly what Jesus says in the scriptures. Jesus says, uh, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So we can see that, that Peter is given this and in turn is blessed because of it. So let's look into that a little bit more. I see that as God's movement in an individual. And because of that, movements of the head, actions, uh, intellectual understandings, movements of the heart are not the stuff of Christianity, but rather the symptoms of Christianity. They are symptoms of God working in our lives. The actors of the Christian faith of actions are really just symptoms. So Simon is blessed. His whole life changes just because God acts on his life. I could stop right there. That's pretty, I mean, God acts on your life. Go and be blessed. No, um... But there's so much to think about from that language. One thing that I can't help but think about is the fact that that it's kind of an innocuous thing to say in the grand scheme of things, to change your whole life. If I told you one sentence would change your whole life, would make it to where suddenly you have a different name given to you by God, you would think, oh, no. I mean, put yourself in Simon's shoes. He's just having a conversation with a guy that he likes, basically. He's just in a conversation with his teacher who he appreciates, and then all of a sudden... His name has changed, and he is the foundation that God's church is built on. So while the trajectory of his life might have been leading this way, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the, the, the one moment that kind of changed everything. But this part that astounds me the most about this whole thing is how Peter, in receiving his word from God and sharing it with Jesus, is being allowed a seat at the table of the relationship of God. It's Peter's first real admittance that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, in this relationship that Jesus has with God, is in existence. So by acknowledging that, Peter acknowledges that this relational God is offering relationship to him in turn. But this isn't the first time this happens in Scripture. Like I said, there are other stories in the Old Testament where names change. And those stories all hinge on a person's relationship with God. Abram and Sarai have this huge moment where they become Abraham and Sarah because of a covenant relationship they have with the Almighty. Jacob wrestles with an angel, God, however you want to look at it semantics-wise. But in this wrestling moment, God changes his name because he had this connection with the divine. But relationships are funny things, aren't they? So talking about having a relationship with God, relationships are just this complicated part of life. Even if we take God out of it and just talk about our relationships we have with other people, we have to admit how much our relationships define us. 
Scripture talks about it when it says, as iron sharpens iron, so does one person another. It's when you, you know, iron sharpening iron is rubbing, it is friction, it is sometimes painful. So as we rub up against each other, we change each other. There's a psychological hypothesis called transactive memory. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this before, but it postulates that we actually kind of technically store, like offload our memories onto other people that like our brains aren't really the only spot where our consciousness is, but instead the people we're closest to carry little bits of us with them. And I think there's something to say about that, considering if we think about how much the people that we're close to affect us and how much being close to people affects them. So when we realize that something like this is happening, when we have these relationships that, that, that intertwine us with other people, we have an event to signify the importance of them. And if you think about it, so many of the events that we have that are, that are calling out our relationships with other people have a name change attached to them. Marriages, adoptions, these, these milestone moments in life that we signify with something as big as our, our noticeable identity changing. Even nicknames, to an extent, are kind of like this because they signify a relationship we have with people. This semester, I'm, I'm teaching a seminar at Rhodes uh, with the first-year students. So the freshmen, I have 18 freshmen that I teach all year long about just how to acclimate to college life without dying of cirrhosis of the liver. Um, <clears throat> this is going to be a hard year, y'all. But our first class meeting was this past Monday, and we, to kind of do an introduction, we, we had everybody write out their fullest name, which basically meant not just what your legal name is, but anything anybody calls you, what your nicknames are, what your mom calls you, you know, what you go by on the internet, all of these different names. And so they all wrote them out. And I tell you what, the stories that they gave with them were just beautiful because all of them were like, this is what my aunt calls me. And she's called me that since I was two. Or this is what my best friends on X, Y, and Z ball team taught because I have a lot of sports players. I don't know what to do about this. But they were all like, well, this is what they called me on football team in middle school. And this is what they called me on sophomore year of high school. And it's like he had like six nicknames. I'm like, oh. You know a lot of people, and that's what I'm getting out of this. So it was nice to see that we weren't just seeing who they thought of themselves, but they brought who they were in that moment of time based off of all of the people that they've interacted with. And it just showed how these people became the person that they were in that moment. And it was pretty neat. This is why saying that God is a God of relationship is such a crazy thing to say. Because if relationship between us is this complicated, think about how complicated it is when, when we throw God into the mix. To every other faith system, deities are impersonal, distant, that act, and they act in isolation. But our God is a God who comes close, who initiates relationships, and in doing so allows us to be changed. We see this in the incarnation of Jesus, the fact that God chose to walk among us in the dirt. It's so paramount to our understanding of God that we present God relationally. We have this doctrine of the Trinity that basically says, even if we weren't here, God would still be in relationship with God's self 
three persons, one God. God is interacting with God. The beauty about a three-person relationship, you know, if you had two people, there would be just like a like a closed loop kind of. It's just, just if there were just two interacting, there wouldn't be any reason for another to add on. But when there's three, it looks like there's room at the table for you. It looks, it's the, the, the triune God is beckoning us closer. So let's get back to Peter. Uh, I was joking earlier about Dwayne the Rock Johnson, but Peter is like the rock. So, so Petros in Greek, Richard is not here to judge me for anything I say wrong. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> Petros sounds a lot like Petra, which is the Greek word for rock. So Jesus is saying, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. It's a play on words. He's being witty. He's saying, he's like making a joke. Like you could hear, you could probably, if it wasn't such a, it was a heavy situation, somebody would probably go, wah, wah, in the background. <laughs> But there's ample room to debate about what this rock Jesus is building his church on means. To our Catholic brothers and sisters, this is a veneration of Peter as an individual and all of the popes that will come after him. To our Orthodox brothers and sisters, this is a veneration of Peter that bleeds forth into a veneration of the apostles, which in turn bleeds forth into a veneration of the church. Even more so, there are folks, and I tend to fall in this camp, but again, I don't want to debate in the pulpit, that... uh, it's more of a veneration of Peter's confession, and it's that confession that the church is built on. But looking at it foundationally, what Jesus is saying is, I'm building a church, and it's this confession implanted by God and spurred by a relationship that somehow lies in the foundation of it. So it doesn't matter what the foundation is, this confession is what brought it on. But how crazy is that? Through this confession, We're able to be here today. Through these couple of sentences, this whole thing takes place. So Peter is invited into the fold of God's relationship. But God says, I'm going one step further, and I'm going to use this as a jumping off point to get everybody into this big group hug right here. So when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, the rock is our seat at the table. The rock is our invitation. The rock is the foundation that all our relationships with God are built on, and as such, it is where our relationships with each other are built on. Earlier in the service, we sang possibly my favorite hymn ever, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's one part of it, though, that's always baffled me, because it's such a deep cut in Scripture. The beginning of the second verse where it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. So, so I say it's a deep cut. It's from 1 Samuel, from 1 Samuel chapter 7. Basically what happened, the Israelites defeated the Philistines and Samuel, the prophet, says, I'm going to build this monument at this location, Ebenezer. And the monument is basically there to say we got to this point with God's help. And when I hear monument, I expect this big grandiose thing, but it's just a rock. It's just he puts a rock down and says, this rock is here to say that God was here in this moment, and I'm more like God because of it. And that's exactly what Peter's name change is saying as well. It's a plotting of a trajectory. It's a point with hope of saying, I'm going to be more like God down the road. Just wait and see.
you have no idea where God is taking us next. Now, there's this song I love. I'm talking about all this music. I didn't expect this. By an artist named Andrew Peterson. And the song is called The Good Confession. And it's this really beautiful song where he uses Peter's confession to kind of trace all of the times when his relationship with God grew nearer. He starts when he's nine and getting baptized, and then later when he finds God again as an adult. But near the end of the song, he breaks off, and it really seems to encapsulate what we're talking about today. It reads like this. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. And that though I kick and scream, love is leading me. And every step of the way, his grace is making me. With every breath I breathe, he is saving me. And so then for about 45 minutes, he says, I believe he is the Christ, the son of the living God, because that's how modern worship music works. But those words really seem to just encapsulate what this is. That we have moments where we stop and celebrate that God is making us more like God through our relationship with God. And that it's not this complicated rigor of what to know and how to act, but rather it's just a messy, beautiful relationship. And so I want to offer us the ability today to, to stop and think and see if, if right now is a monument moment for you. If right now is a moment where you want to say God is has worked in me in a way that I never expected, that my life is different now than it was five years ago and God did it, or anything like that. So I, we'll just take a moment to pray, um, and then we'll have our, our invitational hymn. But if, if today feels like a moment like that for you, if you've never been baptized, baptism is a great way in our tradition to encapsulate this moment. We won't change your name when you come out the water. But it is the same kind of idea of saying, I am different than I was, and I will be even more different down the road. So if you would pray with me.